This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Tony Stamp. I'm Melody Thomas. And this is Pop Culture, the podcast exploring themes and characters of popular culture and the contexts in which they came to be. Melody, you're leading the charge on this episode. What's our theme? Okay, I'm going to start by giving you a clue. We'll play a little guessing game. So I'm going to start listing names, and when you figure out what links them all together, you say something. Mm, Sure. Cheryl Blossom, Hayley Mm -hmm. Kiyoko, King Princess, Simon Spire, Troy Sivan, Janelle Monáe, ah. Kevin Abstract, yes. Amanda Stenberg, Captain ah. Holt. Ah, okay. You got it. The last one was the tip-off. Was it? I'm a big Brooklyn 99 fan, and if Captain Holt is any indication, these are all out and proud gay people. Yes. Okay. They're all characters, musicians, actors that are queer or lesbian, gay, bi, pansexual, sitting somewhere <laughs> under the great rainbow umbrella. And so that's what we're going to hear about today, queer representation and pop culture. Are you really playing the gay card right now? Yes, queen. So are there more queer stories and songs and films now than there were a decade ago? How are they received? Do some media do better than others, i.e. does television outperform film? That kind of thing. Okay, so you could say you're going to queer the air. You hate that line. <laughs> I felt so uncomfortable saying that, so, but you forced me. I did. I wrote that for you to say, and I stand by that. We are going to <laughs> queer the air. Okay, so before we talk about what's happening now, we're going to travel back in time to 1991. Way back into the 90s. Yes. My formative years. Yeah, well, I mean, I know that's ridiculous, the 90s being way back when, but it is nearly 30 years ago now, so let that I'm old, in. It's, so that's what you're saying, old, it's cool. is what I'm saying. So the year is 1991, and there's an episode of LA Law on air, uh, and two female characters, CJ and Abby, are walking down the street together when out of nowhere... That was all it was. Oh, and then it wasn't. No, I was going to say. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I have, to, I have to go home. So did you pick up on what was happening in that clip? Well, I that was you watching a clip from LA Law with someone, and it sounded to me like a couple of women were making out. Oh, making out on TV. That's exactly <laughs> right. So that was... The first same-sex kiss on television, Mm. at least on American television, though it was broadcast here. And you heard me just then watching that clip with a New Zealander named Keridwin Roberts, who saw that as a teenager and it caused her to realise some things about herself. What do you remember about when you saw that for the first time? Um, I remember it was my, the end of my first year at uni, I think, and my parents had gone away and me and my best friend and a boy who we both thought we had sort of crushes on were staying overnight at their place. And we watched that episode and the guy went off to bed and then my friend and I just gravitated downstairs (laughs) and had sex. And I was like, oh, I'm queer. Okay. That's surprising. Everybody's been coming out all around me, but I haven't actually sort of figured this out for myself. 
guess I'm figuring it out now. <laughs> so it was actually LA Law. Yeah. That, is that what I'm hearing? Oh, yeah, amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That was the first kiss on television ever. And that was that's a response from Keridwin who watched it and then realized a lot about herself in that moment. When you play me this, I mean, this sounds like quite a heartwarming story to me, but mm. I, I get the feeling that you know, this might be fuel for the argument that gay media turns people gay. Yeah. Uh, that old chestnut. Or maybe, you know, back in the 90s when that was still an applicable train of thought. That was exactly my thought. And I think it's I think it's the kind of thing that people do still say. It's another one of those things that you and I go back and forth about where you're like, oh, people don't still say that, do they? And for I'm some in reason, my liberal I, bubble. Yeah, and for some reason I see this stuff still. But that was exactly my first thought and I put it to her. There are people who think that queer representation on screens creates queer people. You're saying, yeah. I am saying, yeah, but you're creating healthy queer people rather than repressed, unhappy people. But it's not like you were straight until that moment. It was not like I was straight until that moment. It was was that I didn't realise that my feelings could be understood through a story. It was was that I didn't realise that what I could identify was being reflected back to me so I could see myself in it. Because it is, it's a mirror, it's a reflection. And if you don't have that, you see a distorted view. I mean, I don't know, what was I Isn't that funny that her friends were coming out around her, like she said, but it wasn't until she saw it on TV that it was, I don't know, legitimised or something? Yeah, well, she spoke to me about being very story-driven. So I think Mm, for this person specifically, seeing something in narrative form was really illuminating. Now, would I be right in saying that this kiss on LA Law sort of started that TV trope of the lesbian kiss episode? Because I know yeah. there was more than one. Oh, mm. yeah, totally. Do you want to explain what that is? So this is the the episode in a series where there's a seemingly, you know, heterosexual female character and she shares a kiss with a lesbian or bisexual character. And then almost immediately afterwards, that whole storyline and often the other character just disappears Right? There was never a relationship. It's not taken seriously. Yeah, exactly. There was a New York Times piece a while back that examined this phenomenon and found that it often happened, I imagine probably still happens, during sweeps periods, which is where ratings are gathered. I see. Drum up a bit of controversy. Yeah. So it's a bit gimmicky, but in Mm. this case it it incidentally allowed a a bunch of young queer people like Caridwin a brief glimpse of themselves. Yeah. It's like the, the I kissed a girl of television. <laughs> that is a brilliant example. You're about to find out why. Hello. Hello. Ah! It worked. Oh. It did work. I'm just hearing myself back. I'm hearing music. Is there music on your end? Uh, there's no music coming from our end. So this is Kristen Lieb. She's a professor at Emerson College in Boston. And it's quite funny that we had a ghost music technical issue at the start of our chat because music is what she's here to talk about. Kristen's the author of a book called Gender, Branding and the Modern Music Industry, The Social Construction of Female Popular Music Stars. And she's recently gotten curious about a different but related topic. Queer representation in popular music. So Kristen Lee wrote a really great article about this for BuzzFeed, and that's how I found her. It started off with this great term describing a pop music phenomenon that could also be used for that lesbian kiss episode subgenre, and that's FOMOsexuality. That's faux as in F-A-U-X? Yeah, faux like fake, like a fake homosexuality, I guess. Here she is defining it. It's sort of a false framing of a real lived identity. Generally speaking, homosexuality is enacted by heteronormatively feminine, straight-identified women 
who are sort of playing gay for a number of different reasons. Um, they just might want attention. They might want to add some sort of edge to their image. They may want money. They may want more video views. Uh, they definitely want the validation of the male gaze. And so a lot of women in the music industry is a way of just sort of extending upon the practice of making every bit of themselves available for sale in their public image. They sort of bring false portrayals of queerness uh, into their image as a way of, of sort of keeping it interesting. Okay, so it sounds like I Kissed a Girl, the Katy Perry song, is a perfect example of what she's talking yep, about there. totally. Uh, Do you remember any of the lyrics? Uh, I remember I kissed a girl and I liked it. She tasted like cherry chapstick or something oh, like that. nice, yeah. Um, Hope my boyfriend don't mind it. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Kristen talked specifically about this song. She called it a cliff note edition of biphobia. And for people who don't know, biphobia is, you know, like homophobia, but referring to a dislike or prejudice against bisexual people. And it's often tied up in outdated stereotypes that maybe seem harmless from the outside, but end up causing some some harm. So just to show you what some of those look like, here's Kristen listing off a bunch that Katie subscribes to in this song. She's just curious. She's playing an experimental game. She doesn't need to know the woman's name. It's not what good girls do or how they should behave. Um, she's confused. She hopes her boyfriend doesn't mind it. It goes on and on and on and on. So this is just sort of reinscribing every biphobic stereotype available. If you watch the video for the song, you'll notice that she never really looks at a woman. And there are women um, all around her. There are women all around her, and she's completely unfazed, right? So presumably, if this were a, a woman who likes kissing women or girls, in her words, she would probably be interested in the women and all kinds of under things um, around her in these rooms in the video. But instead, she's sort of grinning at the camera, winking at it, right? So that's that's one of the indications that this is probably not an authentic uh, representation. It doesn't seem like she's doing this for her pleasure. It seems like she's doing it for the pleasure of the person watching. So I made you watch this video as <laughs> homework. Did you do it? <gasps> I did. I mean, I, I remember seeing it back in the day when yeah. it came out, but I rewatched it in the RNZ office. This one, actually much more than I remember, is, is just completely about objectifying Katy Perry. And at the end, I was kind of shocked. She literally wakes up next to her boyfriend and it's just been a no a naughty gay dream i haven't made it to the end of that video. yeah totally yeah it's okay the lesbianism was just a dream there there lie quiet now you just had a bad dream remember me your old pal hunk another part of your homework was that i asked you to watch some videos from another artist called Haley mm -hmm. kyoko she's a pop musician actor and dancer and her fan base refers to her as lesbian jesus lesbian jesus strikes again which you may have i mean you may have gotten some clues as to why she is um, <laughs> called that from her videos but did, did you watch a few did you disappear down a Haley kyoko rabbit hole I haven't gone down a rabbit hole yet, but I, I did watch two of them. I watched the, a song called Curious first, mm. which is, as suggested in the title, about um, not Haley, I think, but a female friend of hers is curious about her as a potential lover. Um, but that girl has a boyfriend in the video. So it's, I mean, similar themes, I suppose, to the Katy Perry one, but in a much more unashamed way. Mm. Um, and, and very specifically, it's saying, if you're a young woman, don't be afraid of these feelings. You know, uh, it, it could be something much better than what you've got. 
and then you compare that to the cheesy kind of winky, like, oh, I kissed a girl. Like, I hope no one minds that I did that of Katy Perry. And it's just, it's so stark. The difference is so stark. I mean, Katy Perry's video is clearly trying to appeal to straight men, in my opinion. Mm. And Hayley Kyoko's is not. It's trying to appeal to young women. I mean, it's not exclusionary. It's for everybody. Mm. But I think it's definitely targeted in that direction. So here's an interesting fact. In an interview, Hayley Kiyoko, a.k.a. Lesbian Jesus, has talked mm. about how much she loved and still loves that song, I Kissed a Girl. Because mm. when she was 17, she heard it on the radio and it was it was kind of the moment when she realised that you could sing on the radio about kissing girls. Mm. So it's her version of the L.A. law kiss. Yeah, it's like it's the questionable content empowering authentic queer expression later on. Gotcha. All this FOMO sexuality has been dominating the foreground. Here's Kristen one more time. But queer artists has, have been watching that happen while they're sort of quietly building their ranks in the background so that all of a sudden, like over the course of the last five years, we have something like 14 prominent you know, female pop stars who are out as, you know, lesbian, bisexual, pansexual, or queer, right? And then these numbers are incredibly encouraging because if you only have one or two people, everybody's cultural expectations on what it means to be a lesbian or bisexual get loaded onto those two people, which is like criminally unfair to them. And then, of course, they're nitpicked to within an inch of their lives because one person can't represent everyone, right? But if you have Janelle Monet and Haley Kiyoko and Miley Cyrus, Lady Gaga... Uh, Demi Lovato, you know, Kesha, Sia, Kehlani, Rita Ora, the list goes on and on and on. You all of a sudden have this diversity of representation of queerness, and it lets a lot more in terms of audience members participate in that moment and feel made visible. What could happen next to short circuit this? What are the things to look out for that could send us, you know, it feels like we're on a good track that could send us off course? hold women to standards of perfection. And anytime they they do anything that we think is not woke or anything that is not queer or anything that is not like woke and queer at the same time, if we decide that we're going to cancel them, then we can be back to the point where we're rendered invisible again, right? And that's sort of terrifying because if I look at the gap between the late 80s and sort of the early to mid 90s, and now I'm like, We've got this sort of 25-year gap where there was, like, no no visibility at the top level of popular music. like, And that, that came from the period of uh, Melissa Etheridge's Yes, I Am and Katie Lang and the Indigo Girls and people winning Grammys and, you know, having hit records and things like that. So how does that happen? Now we have so many different people that I think as long as we let those different people express their gender and sexuality in the way that that they want to do that, I think that we're going to be okay because there will be no sort of putting the genie back in the bottle after that. But if we try to like prescribe the right way of being lesbian, bisexual, pansexual or queer, and then we sort of hold people against a sort of arbitrary standard and say, you didn't do this right, that's how we end up invisible again. So that's Kristen Lieb talking about queer female pop stars. And if the sound of lesbian Jesus is appealing to you, then I suggest you seek out an artist called King Princess and especially her uh, newish song, Pussy is God. (laughs) I definitely will. I've never been so intrigued by a song title. (laughs) It's an amazing song. 
So, so far this episode's been pretty focused on queer female sexuality and pop culture. And because you're based in Auckland, I thought I'd give you an assignment, which was to talk to a couple of male gays. And the reason I use that term is because that's a term that this pair use themselves. So maybe you want to add some context to that. Yeah, that's right. They actually make two shows under the name The Male Gays, G-A-Y-Z, that's spelled. <laughs> it's Eli Matthewson and Chris Parker. These two cuties were always going to be best mates. Born and raised in beautiful Christchurch before growing up, spreading their drama wings and flying north to Taika Amawi. That's where they discovered boys, television and each other. They started out as Chris and Eli but were destined to become The Male Game. So I took Eli and Chris out for a cheeky long macchiato and a bit of a chat and we talked about some of their formative memories of queer characters on TV and film and how they affected them. Who's gay, who's gay on Desperate Housewives? I feel like, isn't there like a gay guy who's also killed someone? Yes. Oh, oh, it's Marsha Gay Holden's son and then he kills someone and they're covering it up and they like don't want anyone to know he's gay. Yeah. Ugh. I think as well because it was never like outed, but there was, we talk a lot about like coded characters on our podcast, of like characters who read as gay, like all their kind of defining qualities. Like Ryan from High School Musical. Yeah. They're just these kind of floating men who have like a flair for pa- like for fashion <laughs> and you're just like, who is this character? Do you like me, Bert? Do I like you? Mm-hmm. Well, of course I like you, Ernie. You're my best friend. Oh, well that's great, Bert, because you're my best friend too. Does that bum you out? Like, uh, I think of J.K. Rowling, you know, writing all her books and then after the fact going, oh, by the way, Dumbledore's gay. Yeah. It just seemed like so token. Oh, well, Chris has never read Harry Potter because he's a heathen, but yeah, that annoys me so much. It's like uh, the afterthought diversity being like, well, I didn't say they weren't white or like... You know, like <laughs> That was, was your That was bias. you doing that. It's like, no, no, you, you didn't write diverse characters. And yeah. the Dumbledore thing especially just grates me so much. It's, cra- it's crazy to me they've got this, like, giant school of teenagers and the one character who you want to make be queer as well was an old man. <laughs> like, oh, a 190-year-old wizard mentor. Oh. Like, I don't know. Shortland Street was big for me. I remember seeing Maya and Jay getting yeah. married, and it was like a pretty positive storyline. And then there ain't no thing that one. Eh? Like yeah. there was no, um, there was no kind of scandal around that. Oh, actually, I was talking yeah. the other day about Gerald on Shortland Street. Oh yeah, um, played by Harry McNaughton, who was the asexual character, and like all his friends trying to like squeeze his sexuality out of him. Like, what are you? What are you? What are you? And I was just like, I found that really confronting because that sort of yeah. felt like my experience of everyone kind of trying to like stoke my sexuality out of me. You know what else was like a big thing for me was the Christina Aguilera beautiful video. Like oh. one of the scenes was two men making out and then they cut it out and they wouldn't play that uh, until after 7pm or something. That's <laughs> great. I remember looking up like important queer films when I was young and being like what do I want to watch to like get to know the world and just like so often the content is like depressing, tears, sad stuff, people yeah. who can't be together, people who break up. I mean even Love, Simon, that was like such a blockbuster, big mainstream film, but it's still kind of set around like the trials and tribulations of coming out. Like yeah. I really loved it. I think it's like a beautiful, sweet film. And Jennifer Garner's a wonderful mother. <laughs> Any opportunity to see Jennifer Garner on film is um, a real honour, but <laughs> you're just like, I mean like, it's important for like, I think, queer people to see the narrative of coming out because it's really encouraging, but I'm like, what happens next? Like, yeah. it'd be so good to see that story of like, 
the story of the other other kid at his school, the like comfortable, confident queer yes, kid. Yes, I love that character. Yeah. yeah, that other kid was a great character. And it's it's interesting, that comment about coming out stories. I heard from pretty much every single person that I spoke to, and we're going to hear it again. Yeah, so I actually asked Eli and Chris if there were any other sort of overplayed gay tropes that they'd be happy to never see again. I've done a full 360 on this. I feel like when I... Th- first came out there was like you're like but don't just see me as this camp cliche I'm more than that like I, you know and um, now I'm like really embrace those sides of myself like I'm really good with hair I love a wig I love doing my makeup before I do my musical at night like these are like kind of cliches but I don't mind them like, I don't like seeing straight men try and play those camp yes. cliches and that's why I saw actually the, that really gets me God. but it's like thin it's like camp with no substance it's like it's just a vocal sound with nothing behind it didn't want some like straight man flimsing his wrists around putting on a wee like lisp and kind of trotting around I don't know why I feel like I can get away with that but you can't yeah. but I don't trotting around <laughs> uh, so we're going to come back to the whole can straight actors play queer characters dilemma later? So do hold that thought. But let's just quickly wrap up. What do we get from that conversation in terms of gay men and gay male characters in pop culture? Yeah, I feel like the characters that they remember from growing up actually Mm. say a lot. So off the top of the heads, they named, you know, a secretly gay murderer, a character (laughs) who's obviously gay but never says it explicitly, Mm. another who was never gay until... The writer decided to say they were after the fact. Classic. A nice lesbian love story. That's good, but uh, no men. And an asexual character who's pressured to conform a lot. And a gay kiss that was edited out of a music video. So I don't know if you are a big reader of Teen Vogue, Tony Stanton. I am genuinely a huge fan of Teen Vogue. Gosh, Teen Vogue have really... That's what happens when you become woke in a really authentic way that serves your audience, isn't it? Teen Vogue have genuinely left Vogue in their dust. Yeah. And I recommend them highly to a lot of people, and people give me a funny look. But then they read Teen Vogue, and they're like, you're right, this is brilliant. Yes, we should all be reading Teen Vogue. And imagine (laughs) what our lives would look like if we'd had Teen Vogue as it is now Mm. when we were teens ourselves. Anyway, a whole other conversation. There was a piece that I read in Teen Vogue. The title was LGBTQ Women in Pop Culture, Here's What Needs to Change. So the writer's a woman called Sarah Beecham, and she lives in Brooklyn, New York. So when I was there recently, which I'm, that's not a brag, even though it sounds like a brag, <laughs> I went to see her and have a coffee and pick her brain about some of the things that she had brought up in that article. And we talked for ages about the shows that she you know, as a culture writer as and as a queer-focused culture writer thinks are nailing it and the ones that she thinks are definitely not. One that she loves is called High Maintenance, which is co-written by two people. Uh, one of them is Katya Blickfeld, who's a queer woman who writes queer characters who, to Sarah, feel much closer to her real-life experience. They are so good at writing characters in general, but the way that she handles lesbian characters on that show is just great because it has zero to do with them being gay because if you actually meet a gay person like very few like a small portion of their life has anything to do with being gay you know like you're not talking about it all the time you're not thinking about it usually all the time and so she just does a good job of like writing characters that are they have conflicts and they're existing in the space and literally none of it has to do with their sexuality they just Mm. like they happen to be gay which is all i think we want as viewers it's like okay we've seen all the sob stories we've seen every single coming out story we can possibly see we've exhausted that so now let's just put a character in there and have them live a life you know 
um, just like every other straight character ever. Because most gay people, believe it or not, aren't struggling with that. We're like totally cool with it. It's just Ooh. everyone else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's that coming out comment again. Yeah, and also what she said about just wanting more queer characters who get to just exist in this space like straight characters always do. Mm. Uh, Chris and Eli said something a lot like that as well. There's so many roles that could just be gay characters, but, like, again, their sexuality doesn't have to be their defining point. Yeah, and I was like, yeah. Wouldn't that be, that would be really exciting. Yeah, so all these comments about not another coming out movie and maybe a character can just be gay and fine with it and they don't need to struggle the whole time made me think, have we spent all of these years making gay movies for straight people? Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of truth in that. I mean, Mm. I've definitely seen movies where I thought, you know, this is just to reassure straight people that it's okay to be gay and, you know, mm. they're just like you and me. That's you know exactly, I mean? she actually, Sarah said that, but then I laughed so loudly that I had to edit it out because I, like, was going to destroy people's eardrums. <laughs> but I said that to her and she started talking about this especially terrible Netflix movie that she'd recently seen that to her was a really great example of that. Well, Jenny's wedding was made for straight people. It was like a PSA. It was like, put this on for your like bigoted Aunt Kathy when she doesn't know what to say when you come out. Because it was just so bad. And no gay person would ever enjoy watching it. Actually, as a lesbian watching it, it was painful. Because it's like this entire movie where everyone's just shouting about how bad she is. And you're like, oh my god, am I bad? How long have you known this? Always. What did we do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. This is just how I am. I always thought you were like me. That hasn't changed. I am like you. I'm still the same person, Mom. No. You're not. It brings you back to such a horrible place, but you're absolutely right. It's for straight people to kind of wrap their heads around it. And I feel like it's almost not really relatable because if I were born straight and grew up straight and never had to come out or think about my sexuality, I would look at that and I would be like, oh, that's so hard for gay people. Gay people have it so hard. And I don't don't even like that because it's like, no, like people like you make it hard. Like my life could be so easy. And I want you to see an example of me living a life that's akin to yours. I don't want you to feel bad for me and lift me up in that way. I want you to just kind of see that I deserve, you know, equal everything. Okay, Melody, before we continue, can we just take stock of what we've heard so far? Yes, good idea. So it seems like pop music's doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a bunch of gay women in pop who are out and proud and seem to be celebrated for that. Yep, and it's a more diverse group than ever before. And we've heard a bit about shows like High Maintenance that feature, you know, well-rounded gay characters. Yeah, and there have been so many mentioned to me that are really standout as well. Sense8, Orange is the New Black, not unproblematic, but a lot of people do really love it. Queer Eye, Orphan Black, Unbreakable Commissioner and the Amazing Titus Andromedon in that show, Empire, The Walking Dead, Pose. The characters on the show Pose total more than half of all trans representation on cable currently. Supergirl includes TV's first ever trans superhero, Broad City, Steven Universe, which is really inclusive and for kids. So it sounds like television is doing pretty well. For the most part it is. There's an organisation in the United States called GLAAD, which is G-L-A-A-D, and every year they release a Where We Are on TV report, which looks Hmm. at queer representation in in television series. 
So in their 2018 report, 8.8% of characters in these shows that they surveyed identified as gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender and or queer. And that's the highest number that they've ever counted. They also counted 26 regular and recurring trans characters, which is up from 17 last year. And racial diversity of queer characters is also up significantly. In fact, for the first time, LGBTQ characters of colour outnumber white LGBTQ characters. Mm. So that sounds great. But, Mm. I mean, as we know, just having queer characters on screen doesn't do much good if they're just reinforcing damaging stereotypes or, like, old tropes. Totally. And there is this one old TV trope that just um, refuses to die, Mm. and it's known as the bury your gaze trope. I have actually heard of this. So it's the idea that queer characters are essentially expendable and uh, often, you know, these characters will just be killed off without much warning or just when that character's arc has reached a high point and often their death plays out in service to a straight character's storyline. And, mm. you know, there's a bunch of research showing that queer characters are way overrepresented in terms of on-screen deaths. So you maybe heard this trope uh, come about again in 2015, 2016. People were talking about it because it seemed to have a huge re-emergence, especially for queer female characters, and there was a heap of outrage around it. Uh, it even sparked a pledge called the Lexa mm. Pledge where fans are encouraging writers to take a pledge to treat queer characters better wow. after a beloved main character on the show, The 100, was offhandedly killed. You're actually completely right. That is where I heard about it when it it happened on the 100. And Mm. yeah, I got wind of that, that huge outrage. Yeah. So how are films doing? I know that films like Moonlight... And Call Me By Your Name were mm. very successful critically. There was also Love, Simon, yeah. which I think did well commercially. Yeah, I mean, as Eli and Chris pointed out, Love, Simon was a coming out movie, but it was really well done and there were a flood of stories in various media after that movie came out where kids felt emboldened by the movie to come out to their family. So mm. awesome, but... Ah, OK, there's, there's bad news on the horizon. Yeah, well, so as well as their TV study, GLAAD conducts another one uh, called the Studio Responsibility Index, which looks at queer representation in film. And despite some really amazing queer films like those that we've just talked about, the report found a significant decrease in LGBTQ-inclusive films from major studios. Hmm. That's Mm. really surprising. Yeah, it is surprising and pretty disappointing. The only positive thing that I could find in that report was that racial diversity of queer characters is up like with television, so, you know, silver lining. (laughs) One thing that Eli and Chris briefly talked about was straight actors playing gay characters. So they were talking specifically about straight male actors playing camp, which is its own thing. But this conversation about who can play whom is one that's getting a bit of airtime at the moment. So a little while ago I saw a casting call, I think you maybe even alerted me to it, that was posted on Twitter by the bilingual Māori web series Ahikaro. Um, the series was created for Māori television and also broadcast terrestrially. And on Twitter, they did a posting for an open audition for a character called Kid. I'm just going to read it here. It's in front of me. Male, aged 16 to 20, takatāpui slash gay, uh, and speaks fluent te reo Māori because it's a bilingual series. Obviously, for the creators of this show, it is important that authenticity is part of their casting. So I called in a writer and script editor on the show, Todd Karehana, to talk about why that is important to them. We were really uh, insistent on having a gay actor or a, 
a gay person play that character um, for a sense of authenticity. And when I was driving here, um, just thinking about the distribution of resources to actors, you know, if there's all these um, straight actors playing gay roles, that means there's all these straight actors getting the funds that come with playing roles. And so I think it's important to have a gay person play a gay character and other queer characters be played by their actors that identify in, mm. that, in that way. Recently, I don't know if you saw it, but Kate Blanchett was in the media defending straight actors playing queer roles. She said something like, I will fight to the death for the right to suspend disbelief and play roles beyond my experience. And there were a bunch of different responses to that, some in support and others not. And a couple that I saw that I found especially interesting were from queer people who were saying, okay, yeah, like this is acting in a way she's right, or would be if we lived in a world where roles weren't overwhelmingly given to straight actors or where queer actors didn't still feel like they had to hide their sexuality to get a role. Yeah, if there were, if that was the case, totally, you mm-hmm. could see why it would be an interesting exploration for a straight actor to play a, a queer character, but it's not our reality. So until that day, I do think it's not right that non-queer actors are playing characters that don't they don't identify with. You as content creators were in a position where you were able to say, we want this exact person to play this role, because I imagine that that often isn't the case for people. Yeah, and in saying that, finding an actor to play that character was not easy. On top of Kid being gay, he is also 16. It's hard to find a young boy that's straight or gay that is willing to play a gay person on screen to Mm. New Zealand and the wider world. And um, I was thinking about it, what are some solutions to make that process easier? And I think given it's so hard to find actors that do identify as that and are young and are interested in acting, I think it means that networks and funders need to provide extra funding to give more of a lead into that process. So having extra weeks of casting to be able to find these roles. Um, it's not going to be easy for us, but it's something that I think should be invested in, both with time and money, to make sure it happens. Mm. I guess the other side of all of this as well is, you know, it's not just finding the talent, it's also in the writing and character development, making sure that you're not reinforcing titled stereotypes of what queer people look like. Yes. Um, thankfully, there are uh, three or four queer-identifying people in our writing team, um, me being one of them, and we have had many conversations about how we want to represent queerness in this show and the, the things that we are sick of seeing in other shows and the stereotypes and the assumptions that other shows use to create drama and how we don't want to, we want to go against all of that and make this character nuanced and speak truth to what we see as our experience. What are some of the examples, or can you give just one one example even, of something that other productions do in terms of reinforcing old stereotypes for the sake of drama? Uh, I think one big example is the coming out story. Me as a gay man, I've lived in gay relationships for the last 10 years, and so the coming out story really doesn't speak to who I am and the part of my life that I'm in right now. But that's 
probably the main story we see in all films and television when it comes to a gay character is this realisation that they're gay or or that everyone else finds out that they're gay. And so one difference we did with Kid is that we've made him know he was gay since he was a kid and in the very first um, time he meets one of our main characters he tells him that he's gay. Ah, so why aren't you coming into work? It's Saxon. Our client. What about him? Oh, honey. <clears throat> what? He likes him. Yeah, I like him too. No, he like likes him. Ah. Oh. Bro, it's all good to have crushes on people. Even people you work with? Yeah. That completely goes over all of that boring, same territory that we've seen in gay characters and moves to something more interesting where we can... Uh, explore what it's like for him being openly gay. That's Todd Karehana from Ahikaro, and keep an eye out for that character in the next season of that series. Yeah, so if you came here for an answer to the can straight actors play queer characters dilemma, we don't have one. Um, it depends who you ask, and obviously for Todd Karehana and the crew at Ahikaro, it's really important. Yeah, we heard Chris and Eli of the male gays talking about how they don't like seeing straight actors playing camp. Uh, But when it came to sort of drawing a line in the sand on on straight actors playing gay generally, they were more concerned about cisgendered actors, uh, people whose gender identity aligns with their sex at birth, playing Mm. trans characters. So the the Scarlett Johansson debacle of Mm. last year. Todd also mentioned to me that on Shortland Street there is more than one gay character being played by a straight actor, but then there are also gay actors playing straight characters, so... It's really complicated. It's complicated stuff. And I did reach out to Shortland Street to talk about this, and they got back to me and said that this issue is important to them. But given my timeline, they didn't feel like they could give me an adequate response. So I will reach out to them later, and and we can have a chat about that. It's nearly time to wrap this episode of Pop Culture, but there's one last person to hear from, and I'm going to ask you to guess who this is too, if you can Mm. tolerate it. (laughs) Sure, let's do this. (laughs) Okay, this is a straight actor who's probably most famous for playing a character who wasn't explicitly written as a lesbian, um, but was kind of made into a lesbian icon by queer audience members. Okay, so an actor. (laughs) Yeah. um, So not Madonna or Cher? No. Yeah, an actor, and the role that we're talking about was for television. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, one last clue. No idea. One last clue. Zena herself. Zena, God's own Lucy Lawless. <laughs> so, just quickly for the babies in our audience, Zena Warrior Princess was a TV series in the 90s that followed a couple of kick ass babes. Zena was the main kick ass babe. She's played by Kiwi actor Lucy Lawless and her sidekick, Gabrielle. So, they travelled over the series through different adventures through which they remained ever by each other's sides. I'm wondering if you remember the first kind of moment that you became aware of theories by the fans about Zena and Gabrielle's romantic involvement? I remember exactly the moment. Renee and I were standing on the side of set and um, I think Rob, who's now my husband, executive producer, brought in, I guess, a fax in those days, it would have been a fax of a Village Voice article 
uh, which was talking about these two queer women kicking mm. ass on TV. And we were really amused because it had never occurred to us. <laughs> Though, looking back, and it became quite apparent to me that Rob and Liz Friedman and RJ Stewart, the writers and producers, knew exactly what that dynamic was and that that was the cutting edge of society on television at that time. And that's Mm. where Rob's shows always start. He will see where is the boundary. I'm banging on that. I'm pushing on that. Because that's how you, I mean, just in, in terms of business, in a business sense, that's how you get attention to start to grow an audience. You have to be talked about and you need... Uh, you need to satisfy a hunger that is there. And uh, in the case of Zena and Gabrielle, it was the two female leads with no visible means of male support. But in the very first mm. episode, it was just a line and it was coded. You know, in the 90s, things were very subtextual. For example, Subaru, Subaru, as we say in New Zealand, Subaru did this. They wanted to market their station wagons and they did some research and they realised that lesbian women in America, were buying Subarus. So they wanted to grow that market. So they started doing these subtextual advertisements, which would have two women at a car yard, and their number plate would be Xena. And the gay (laughs) women understood. Everybody else could miss it. They'd just go, oh, there's a woman and her sister buying a car. But gay women understood implicitly and flocked and they did it was a very successful marketing campaign in that niche. I think my mother from memory was a huge Kevin Sorbo fan. From that we ended up going into Xena and I just have so many memories of watching Xena but I was a child so I don't remember picking up on any sexy or romantic undertones in that relationship but I I went back and watched some you know in preparation for this interview and I feel like it's there from the very beginning. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Mm. Well, certainly it would have been written. And the fact that Renee and I were oblivious is, is not with, notwithstanding. You know, that clearly it's um, it's not requisite for the actors to be in on the joke. Mm. <laughs> you know? That is but, uh, because yeah. yeah, the line in the first episode was Gabrielle saying, I'm not the little girl that my parents wanted me to be. Mm. And I just thought, oh, well, that's normal teenage angst. But all the gay girls out there knew by the Subaru, you know, that... Um, the message was clear to them. And one of our writers, Liz Friedman, is a uh, lesbian, and she, yeah, that was always, I'm sure, her, not only her mandate, but her personal mission. You know what is quite interesting is what the gay community got out of it. Mm. And I don't fully understand it myself, apart from visibility, some sort of strength. There was also, you know, my fan base on the rare occasions that I do conventions. It's a very intense fan base. And um, of the Xena fans, it's people who felt marginalised, which really could be any of us. But um, African-American women, um, anybody who felt in the minority, disabled people, gay people, people who were sick, Australians for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Really popular in Australia. But a lot more men in Australia. That's interesting. Is um, it? Yeah, I don't know why, but... So what um, is it? Because I can understand why people who maybe felt marginalised for their sexuality would relate to this character specifically. Yeah. But I'm wondering why more generally, because she was so strong and power. That's yeah, why. That's, right. It's about power, and um, the inner, the triumph of the inner 
and authentic, the reward of being authentic and living your uh, being courageous and um, rising above the situation, especially relationship wise, that you were born into. So mm. if your parents didn't approve of you or if the world tells you that you're not, that you're in some way, you have some sort of deficit, to take that message of strength, they would take it and um, turn it into some uh, very creative and powerful influence in their own lives, you know, an impulse in their own lives. And um, yeah, it was kind of an amazing alchemy. And I'm, I just realise how incredibly lucky I was to be part of that. That's Lucy Lawless, also known as Xena, Warrior Princess. What a babe. I was very nervous, but I cut most of that out, so I sound heaps more in control of myself. Totally cool. Totally in control. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Pop Culture. I'm Tony Stamp. I'm Melody Thomas. You can subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or any number of other podcast providers. And if you like what we do, please leave a review. Yeah, go on. We know you do. Pop Culture was produced by us, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. And this is our second-to-last episode. What have you got for us mm. next week, Tony? We will be looking ahead into the future. Was there a silence? No, you had, you know, Madonna kissing Britney Spears, even though that was but that was just performative. A stunt, right? That was performative. That was what this expert calls That's a new word, homosexuality. Faux, F-A-U-X. But hang on, what's mo? <laughs> well, oh, like homo, but FOMO. Oh my god, yeah. that's amazing. That's good. Eh? Um, <laughs> you are teaching me all kinds of oh, things. Oh, look at this. Maybe um, sleep deprivation works for me. Jeez, yeah, I'm so glad I got up today. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I was uh, based my career on that. But um, <laughs> I just want to say I thank you all very much. It was a lovely role. It was really fun. Yeah, it's given me everything.